0: With me to Psalm 27. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Please pray with me. Our gracious Lord, we need You to speak this morning. We need You to speak through Your Word by the power of Your Holy Spirit. We are sinful men and women and we stand before You utterly unable, Lord, to even comprehend the words that You have given us. So please intervene. Enter now, Lord, and graciously work in our hearts that we may hear and that we may obey all that You have revealed to us concerning life and godliness. And may Your Holy Son be glorified in our midst. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our text this afternoon is Psalm 27, but before we start working through the psalm, there are just a couple things that we need to keep in mind about the book of psalms to begin with. First, the context of the psalm. Now, I missed it in my reading, but what is the first thing that comes in Psalm 27? It is not, the Lord is the Lord is my light. It is of David. Now, the superscriptions are Spirit-inspired. Those are the Word of God as well. This is not a throwaway phrase, but it communicates that this psalm was written by the anointed King of Israel at a certain point in his life. Now, David was a shepherd. He was the youngest son of Jesse. David was anointed as the king of Israel by the prophet Samuel. You'll remember that God declared that David was a man after God's own heart. Saul was a king like the kings of the nations. David was a king after God's own heart. And so two important things for us to remember. First, David was a man after God's own heart. Just tuck that away because we're going to come back to that. Second, David was the anointed king of Israel. Now what does that mean? It means that if you are to oppose or to attack the king of Israel, it is God's anointed that you are attacking, which means you are attacking the very plans and purposes of God Himself. To wage war against the anointed king is to oppose God's rule and reign. And so we have to ask the question, well, when did David write this psalm? We're not given that information. David did not author this as Psalm 27. David just wrote this psalm, and it was compiled at a later point. We believe by Ezra. The historical information that that the compiler of the book of Psalms gives us prior to this comes if you turn back to Psalm 3. That's the first reference. Look at the superscription there. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So you have Absalom opposing the rule and reign of of God, opposing the rule and reign of David, and you have David pinning this psalm. Then turn over to Psalm 7. A shigion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, Cush a Benjaminite. Saul was the king right before David. Saul tried to eradicate David because David was the rightfully anointed king. What tribe did Saul come from? Benjamin. So the the idea, we don't have any historical information regarding Cush, but the fact that Cush is a Benjaminite tells you that Cush was probably also opposing the rule and reign of David. So the, the historical information we have so far. The next one, turn over to Psalm 18. Psalm 18. To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And then David said. That's how the, 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 the compiler is setting us up. Psalm is compiled into five books. Those five books tell a story for Israel coming out of exile." The first book, which is the book that Psalm 27 in, is the story of David's arise to kingship as all of those who were opposing that were put down by the Lord. If you, if you see the structure of the book of Psalms, you'll, you'll see that. And so we have Psalm 3, Psalm 7, Psalm 18, all setting Psalm 27 in the context of opposition to David's reign. But it's not just any opposition, right? Because what did Absalom represent? What did Saul represent? They both represented someone who had control of the state who was trying to wield the power of the state against David himself. It's one thing if you think about man versus man, but if you think about yourself versus an an entire nation, think about the odds, right? Think about the fear and trembling that you would be filled with if you yourself were in David's shoes. And so that's the the context that we're going to place Psalm 27 in. So as we think about Psalm 27, there are three contexts that we have to to keep in mind. And I'll I'll bring these back as as we go through. First is the context of the original psalm. Second is the context of the Jews in exile to whom the book of Psalms was given as a whole book. And then third is how does this psalm fit into the overarching storyline of God bringing all things to fulfillment in Jesus Christ? And so we're going to keep these three things in mind as we come to our text. So our first point this morning is David's confidence. David's confidence. Look at verses 1-3. through David writes, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, when adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. In the midst of intense persecution, an army encamped against David, David declares that his confidence is the Lord alone. The ground of David's confidence is God, because God is his light, his salvation, and his stronghold in the face of intense danger. So first, God is David's light. Darkness brings terror. We are always more afraid of things in the dark than we are in the light, are we not? If you're lost in the woods and the sun is out, it's enjoyable. If you're lost in the woods and it's dark, it's not, right? So that just as as an easy illustration. But why is that? Why are we always more afraid in the dark than we are the light? It's because we can see what's around us. We don't know the direction of a threat, nor do we even know the possible threats because we cannot see them. But the light dispels darkness. It illuminates what is around us. Light is revealing. And for David's, God's presence was like light in the darkness. God's promise to David that he would be the anointed king and that God would establish David's feet on the throne, that was light to David. David knew that nothing coming against him would prevail because David himself had the confidence that it was God who was bringing these promises to fulfillment. God's word was a light to David, especially in the midst of suffering because God's word illuminated God's good purposes for David. David knew that his assailants would not ultimately overthrow him because God had promised that David would sit on the throne. David's confidence was stable insofar as he did not question what God had said. David knew that salvation would come, which is the very next thing that David declares that God is. God is David's salvation. Now, David had been rescued time and time again, But what David is calling to mind by thinking of God as his salvation is primarily the miraculous redemption of the people of Israel from the land of Egypt. When the Jews thought about the idea of salvation, the exodus was the fundamental thing that they were thinking about. Israel had been enslaved by the mightiest mightiest nation on earth for 400 years. By Egypt, Egypt was the international superpower of the day. They had the most fertile land, they had the best technology, they had the most people. Israel, or Egypt seemed impregnable. And Israel was enslaved there for 400 years. But God demonstrated his omnipotent power by bringing Egypt to their knees through the words of a stutterer named Moses and ten plagues. God redeemed Israel from Egypt, He freed them from their bondage, and He established them as a new nation in the land flowing with milk and honey. When David thought about redemption, when David thought about salvation, that's what was on David's mind, was God overthrowing the greatest nation on earth. David's confidence was that the same God who had waged war against Egypt was actively waging war on his behalf. David trusted the word of God. David knew that God kept his promises and David knew that none of God's plans could be thwarted because no one is mightier than God. The final aspect of David's confidence is that God is a stronghold for David. The Lord is a fortified city or a fortress. God is a place of shelter. He's a place of protection. He's a place of provision. God is an unassailable hiding place. David knew that God could and that God would protect his life. For anything to get to David, it had to go through the hand of the sovereign Lord of the universe. Therefore, David knew that his life was safe. And David reminded himself over and over, God is my rock, God is my salvation, God is my stronghold, God is my shield, God is my horn. Because God was David's confidence. The God who spoke the universe into existence. The God who had ripped Israel from the land of Egypt. The God who had established them in the land of Israel while all of their foes waged war against them. That same God was working on behalf of David in the midst of his suffering. Therefore, David had no fear. David knew the promises of God. David knew the plans and purposes of God, and David trusted that the Lord could accomplish everything that he had spoken, no matter the opposition. And look at the opposition. Verse 2, When evildoers assail assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble. These evildoers are being pictured as vicious, wild animals attacking David. Verse 3, Though an army encamp against me. David is picturing himself facing an army arrayed against him. One man versus an entire army. As I said in the intro, this event is framed in light of Absalom's rebellion and Saul's attempt to murder David. So what is the same about both of these events is that they are both men waging war against the anointed, the plans and purposes of God. Saul was trying to prevent the rightful king from taking his throne. Absalom was trying to throw the rightful king off of his throne. But in both cases, David knew that these men were not merely opposing himself, but that they were both opposing the plans and purposes of God. To assault David was to assault God himself. And so David was confident. David was not confident in his own ability. David was not confident in the strength and number of his own men. David was confident because he knew the true and living God. David knows that God stands superior to any amount of human power and ingenuity. The nations, all the nations are but dust on the scales when compared to the greatness and glory of God. Even as the whole world is arrayed against God in in battle, yet God laughs and holds them in derision. God has given existence to everything that is. David's enemies and David himself were both alike created by God and sustained by God for the will of God and the purposes of God. Nothing is outside the sovereign dominion of the Lord God Almighty. Nothing can stand against God's plans. God himself is the ground of David's confidence in the midst of severe tribulation. But remember now, our second context. Who was the book of Psalms given to? The book of Psalms was handed as a complete book to the Jews in exile. So the Jews had been run out of Israel. They'd been utterly destroyed in 586. They returned 70 years later under the the rule of the Persians who allowed them to go free. The Jews now are in the land with hostile enemies surrounding them. They're trying to rebuild Jerusalem. They're trying to rebuild the temple. And as the Psalms were compiled in book 1, highlighting the suffering of David as the man after God's own heart, this then serves as an example for the Jews in exile in how do we suffer well? We are trying to establish Jerusalem. We are trying to establish the temple. Ezra is ministering in our midst. Nehemiah is leading us. How do we think about ourselves? God's promises have been broken by us, right? God promised blessings for obedience and cursings for disobedience. We were disobeyed. Therefore, we have tasted the curse of the covenant. Are God's promises still good for us? Is God still there? Certainty abo- of must have abounded. But the Israelites were acting in obedience to the Word of God, trusting in the grace of God, hoping in the promise of God. And here, in Psalm 27, they see an example of what it means to suffer like the man after God's own heart. This psalm would have urged them to remember the God who promised that David would have a son and a throne forever. Even as David was not sitting on the throne in their midst, they knew that God was going to send them a son from the line of David. This psalm would have encouraged them to remember the God of the Exodus who can conquer nations. This psalm would have served as an exhortation for the people of God to put their confidence in God and to trust in God as they labored faithfully, not knowing what tomorrow would bring. Against all odds, God had brought them back to the land of promise. Against all odds, God was restoring them as a people. Against all odds, they were rebuilding their capital city and their temple. And so the exhortation was this. Put your confidence in God, do what God has called you to do, and wait for the Lord to act. Brothers and sisters, the same exhortation is for us today too. That we put our confidence in God, that we do what God has called us to do, and that we wait for the Lord to act. As we as we, as Christians suffer... As we as Christians face trials and tribulations, we are commanded just like David to put our confidence, to put our trust in the God who is working in our midst. And we know that if God is behind us, all the resources of heaven are behind us. But how do we know if God is behind us? Are we striving for obedience? Are we striving to walk in accordance with the will of God? And what is the the first commandment, right? That you would repent of your sins and that you would believe in Christ. If you have not done that, God is not behind you. God is actively opposing you. We must trust in the promise of Christ. But Christians, as we seek to live faithfully in the Christian life, we must abide in Christ by letting the Word of God abide in us. God does not bless any whim that we feel. And blessing does not look like health, wealth, and prosperity. Blessing looks like joy and satisfaction in Christ. Blessing looks like even though hell come against you, you can say, in the Lord do I trust, and in Him do I find joy and satisfaction. It is imperative that we understand this. That God blesses obedience to His Word. But think about the life of David, right? Was David always obedient? No. Bathsheba, that whole incident, God was not working on David's behalf. God was not blessing his union with Bathsheba. In fact, through the prophet Nathan, God was explicitly opposing that union. And God brought judgment against David for that union. So even as God's anointed, when David walked outside the will of God, God opposed him. But brothers and sisters, we can trust that God is going to bring us back. God didn't throw David off the temple and end it. God called him to repentance and then he gave David the grace to repent. Similarly, Christian, we need that same grace day in and day out because we are never outside of or above sinning. We are sinful men always desperately in need of grace and the call is the same. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. And the question is always the same. Are you repenting of your sins and are you trusting in Jesus Christ? That is what it looks like to make the Lord God your confidence. Because even as David had made uh, the the Lord his confidence, David still had not seen how his sins were going to be forgiven. We live on the other side of that. We have seen the Son of God crushed on our behalf. We can look back and say, God is for us, right? We know that God is for us because God gave His only Son for us. How can we question His goodness? So hope in God. Repent of our sins. As we struggle, as we fail, we must put our confidence and our trust in God's saving ability alone. David had made the Lord his confidence. And that's evidenced, yes, in David's strength and in David's faith, but that's also evidenced in the fact that David repents and returns to the Lord when he goes the wrong way. But look next. So David's confidence is the Lord. But look at David's petitions. There are two petitions in this psalm, two prayers. We're going to look at the first one first, obviously. Verse 4. David writes, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. David has armies arrayed against him. In the case of Absalom, David has fled the city and Absalom has control, right? Things are not looking good. What does David pray for? Lord, kill Absalom? No. Lord, deliver me from the hands of Saul? He does pray that. But is that the first thing on his mind? The first thing on his mind is, Lord, give me that I may dwell in Your house, that I may gaze upon Your beauty, that I may inquire in the temple. Here again, we see the man after God's own heart. And what does that heart yearn for? The man after God's own heart, his heart yearns to know God. Just as David's confidence drew from the Word of God, particularly surrounding the Exodus, so David's petition echoes Moses' petition, who was another man after God's own heart, from Exodus 33. In Exodus 32, you have Aaron create the golden calf, and the Israelites bow down and worship. This is an act of direct disobedience to the second commandment, which God has just delivered to them. Because of this, in Exodus 33, the Lord threatens to destroy the Israelites for their rebellion. But Moses intercedes on behalf of the people, and the Lord relents. At the end of Exodus 33, Moses asks the Lord to show me your glory. Moses is in direct communication with God. Moses has just bent God's ear to save the Israelites. Think about what what would you ask for at that point? Moses could have requested anything. But what does Moses request? Show me your glory. And the Lord honors that request. The Lord honors that request. The Lord tells Moses that I will pass by and I will declare my name, but Moses cannot see my face because no one can see God and live. And then in Exodus 34, the Lord fulfills this promise. Listen as I read. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with Him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Him and proclaimed, The Lord the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. "...keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation." And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Moses beheld the glory of God on Mount Sinai, and it humbled him. It brought him to worship. The glory of God transformed Moses into that image. During David's lifetime, the glory of God dwelt in the temple. It dwelt in the tabernacle. Which was the house of the Lord, the tent of the Lord, or the meeting place of the Lord. David employs all of these phrases to speak about the same reality. The tabernacle is where the presence of God resided and where God's people came to behold the beauty of the glory of God. In the midst of horrible persecution, David's petition is to behold the beauty of God. That is to know God. To see His glory. To inquire. To converse with Him. David wants to know God. David wants intimacy with God. And again, here we have David held forth as an example for the Israelites in the exile and for us as well. Our priorities are revealed in the midst of suffering. It's revealed what we truly want. Our desires are are made known before our very eyes. And David's heart reveals that in the midst of intense persecution, David wants the Lord alone. David wants to experience God's presence, to to hear the declaration of God's name, to consider God's steadfast love and enduring faithfulness. David does not mainly pray for relief, but David prays that through suffering he will know God. Suffering is not simply alleviated by the resolution of the current problem. Because we all live in a sin-cursed world. So we're going to go from problem to problem to problem to problem, aren't we? There's, there's no final deliverance from our suffering in this life. All of life is marked by suffering because we live in a sin-cursed world. So we all ought to live with some sense of expectation that suffering is on our heels. Our whole life is suffering unto suffering. But our hope and joy is that knowing the Lord our God, the Creator of the heavens of the universe, that we get to experience joy and fellowship in His presence and that He will bring forth for us an eternity of fruitfulness and He will wipe away every tear. David doesn't merely pray for deliverance. David prays to know God. And this knowledge immediately brings David face to face with his own sinfulness. Which is why David follows this petition with a plea for grace. Look at verses seven through nine. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. Why would David say that? Because David knows the sin in his heart. David knows that God doesn't owe him anything. God doesn't owe any of us his grace. When we come before God, we are coming as beggars with nothing to give him, trusting that his abounding goodness will extend to us. But then look at what David does, verse 8. He pleads with the Lord based on the Lord's Word. You have said, Lord, seek my face. Therefore, David says, my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Christian, this is a model for us, a prayer. Do we pray and plead and petition the Word of God to God Himself? God, God has not promised this church a property at Gulf Street. We move forward and you trust that He will bring it about. God has promised to establish His church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Are we praying that? God has not promised that all of our children will be saved. God has not promised that we're all going to live healthy, happy lives. But God has promised that His grace is for those who ask Him. Do we pray the Word of God to God? Do we hold Him to His promises? Or do we just simply pray for the things that we want? Verse 9. Hide not your face from your servant. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. David knows that he doesn't deserve God's grace. David knows that he doesn't deserve God's favor or God's presence. But David knows that apart from God, he has no hope. Right? He, God owes him nothing, but David needs everything. And that's the petition that we're all in. We're all hopeless. We are all lost. We are all beggars before the, the gracious and merciful God of the universe. And we must petition. We must cry out to Him again in full knowledge that we are sinful men. And this is why David can say in Psalm 32, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. To hear the declaration of God's goodness and God's love brings us face to face with the reality of God's justice against us. You see, God is is not just a bunch of parts, a bunch of pieces that we can sort of separate out and pick and choose what we want. We can't just take God's love and God's mercy and throw the rest of it away. Everything that God is, God is essentially, and God does not change. He doesn't gain attributes. He doesn't move one encounter of God to a different encounter of God. It's always the same God. And as we come to know God's love, you cannot know that apart from God's justice. You cannot know that apart from God's goodness. David is not fashioning a God from his own imagination to fit his own desires. David knows the one true God, which means that David knows God in the fullness of God's love and God's justice. God did not owe David anything because God created David and God is the one who promised David the throne. That's not something that David just deserved on his own. If God was to grant David's request, it would be sheer Grace on the part of God. God does not owe anything to anyone. We are all sinners. We, we are all sin tainted. And in fact, every single thing that we have ever done, every breath we have taken, has been tainted by sin. If God stoops down to help us, it is a sheer act of His amazing grace. But the goodness of God is that He has shown us His loving and kindness. And how far has His grace extended? And that He did not even spare His own Son to bring us to Himself. Our God delights in showing grace. Christian, do you delight in receiving it? And consider what the grace of God does. Look at verse 10. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. The closest of family relationships may be abandoned. Parents may abandon children. Children may turn their back on parents. But if you are the Lord's, He will never leave you or forsake you. This is the grace of God. When we are brought into God's family, God is our Father. And God is a kinder, more loving, more gracious, more gentle, more kind, more just Father than even the best earthly Father. And God as a Father delights to answer prayers like David's. David's Fundamental petition is to know the fullness of God and to delight in God's presence. David is not just praying for the gift, but he's praying for the giver. And in Deuteronomy 4.29, we see again that all David's doing here, again, is praying Scripture. Moses tells the Israelites, "...but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find Him. If you search after Him with all your heart and with all your soul..." David is simply obeying the commandment of God to seek him. But think about Deuteronomy 4.29, because that brings us back into connection with the second context that we've talked about, which is Israel in exile. Deuteronomy 4.29 has greater significance as we consider those Jews, because Deuteronomy 4.29 is given as a command for the Jews when they have been taken to another land. After the Jews had inhabited the land, broken the covenant, and been dispersed amongst the nations, then they were to seek the Lord with all their heart. As the man after God's own heart, David is functioning as an example for the Jews to follow. Yes, the covenant has been broken. Yes, you have been cursed and and cast into the land. Yes, you are now brought back. And as we learn from Ezra, all of the priests have soiled themselves by intermarrying with with the Gentiles, so that they can no longer function in their priestly duty. The whole system of religion is broken, and yet the Word of God commands them to seek the Lord. To seek the Lord. David, this is David's prayer in the midst of intense persecution. And as an example for the Israelites in the midst of intense persecution, David's prayer is held forth. And Christian, for us, in the midst of intense persecution... Is this your petition? Does your heart pour forth a desire to know God? Does your heart pour forth to see to see God's nearness and experience His closeness? Or is functional atheism and a treasuring of the things of this world begun to take over? Are you concerned with the grace and glory of God or are you more concerned with your own personal comfort and satisfaction? Our God is alive and He promises that if we seek Him, That if we seek Him like a hidden treasure, He will reveal Himself to us. And David does not just pray for deliverance, but David prays to know God. But David does pray for deliverance, does he not? You might think that I skipped over verses 5-6, through but we're coming back. Look at what David says there. For He will hide me in the shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. The four here is important. David does not want deliverance just for deliverance's sake. David does need deliverance. But David seeks God and in God he finds vindication and peace from his enemies. David seeks the giver and the giver gives the gift. David is, is if we are delivered from one trial, we know that one trial is coming right behind it. David wants deliverance, but this isn't deliverance unto personal peace and safety. This is deliverance again unto sacrificing praises, uh, shouts of joy, singing and making melody to the Lord. David wants this deliverance so that he himself can then glorify God in the midst of the people. David's first petition is to know God, to bring glory to God. And David's seeking of, des- seeking of deliverance is not just for himself, but David's seeking of deliverance is that he will see the plans and purposes of God established. And this serves as a model for us. And so first, David prays to know God. But second, David prays to know God's ways. Look at verses 11 and 12. Teach me your way, O Lord and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. Think about Moses on Sinai one more time. Moses ascended the mountain. The glory of God shined upon Moses, and what happened to him? What happened to his face? Shined like the sun. Moses beheld the glory of God And then Moses himself reflected that glory. This is David's prayer. Lord, show me Yourself. Reflect Your goodness and Your grace upon me. And then here, teach me Your ways so that I may reflect that glory in my lifestyle. The reflection of the glory of God is our obedience to the will of God or, to say it differently, to follow God's ways. To know God is to know that we are not like God. God is righteous, we are sinful. God is holy, we are stained. But to truly know God is that we would desire to be like Him. When you behold something beautiful, you want that thing. You want that thing to be a part of you. We want to in some way inhabit beauty. The only way that we can do that is by being united to the only one who is truly beautiful, which is God Himself. And that beauty is not in the external of appearance or or the external of the flesh, but it's of the heart. That we would reflect the fruit of the Spirit. That is David's experience. That is David's prayer. David wants to know God, and David wants to be like God in showing steadfast love, in showing faithfulness, in showing grace. And notice here in verse 12 David's desire is framed against the desire of the wicked. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. David does not desire to return evil for evil. David does not use this as an opportunity to justify even his own bad behavior. Instead, David's prayer is that God will reveal the path of truth and righteousness to him in the midst of suffering and people sinning against him. Because David wants to know God and David wants to be like God. Now, think with me one more time about the situation that the Jews were in during exile. They were suffering. They were oppressed by the people around them. Just read Ezra and Nehemiah and you'll see this, this the, the oppression. They were trying to be faithful to God's commandment to build Jerusalem, to build the temple. What should they have given attention to? Should they labor to exercise vengeance against their oppressors? Should they labor in prayer for weapons of war and for chariots so that they can go to battle? Should they give themselves to another nation? Maybe if they would just petition Egypt, they could get some help. But David's example points them to the fact that for the man after God's own heart, nothing is more important than knowing and obeying God Himself. David's example tells us, let persecution come. Let suffering come, let sorrow come, but give me the Lord God Almighty and all will be well. David shows us how God's people pray and what God's people desire even in the midst of suffering and tribulation. David's confidence is in the Lord alone and David's petition is to know God and to know His ways. And David has confidence that he will receive his reward. This is point three. David's reward is God Himself. Look at verse 13. David writes, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. An army is encamped against David. Evil men are spewing out lies and trying to destroy him. David is small in number. David is is not the, the one who is ultimately in charge of the situation. And yet, David has confidence that he will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living because God has promised that David will be the king. David's confidence is in the Lord. David's prayer is to the Lord and to know the Lord. And David's trust, David's reward is that God is faithful to give what He promises. Proverbs chapter 2 begins this way. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. The Word of God promises that if we seek God like hidden treasure if we pursue God as we would hidden silver, if we incline our hearts to hear His Word, God will make Himself known. But this is not a passive seeking. And this is not a passionless seeking. If you would find the knowledge of God, you must seek it. You must mine the Word of God to find the gemstones of God's grace buried there. But we have confidence that if we set ourselves to mine this Word, God will meet us. God will be our stronghold. God will be our strength in the midst of suffering. No matter what circumstances arise, no matter what difficulties may come, no matter what earthly joys we experience, None of this compares to beholding the goodness and the glory of God. Christian, is this how you have set yourself? How well do you know God? Does your heart reflect a passionate seeking to know God? If I told you hidden treasure was buried in the churchyard and you had no reason to doubt me, how would you spend the next four, five, six days digging, right? Right? The treasure is before you. And the value contained here is more than truckloads of gold. Does your heart reflect that? Does your heart reflect that you actually believe that? The reward of the Christian life is... Well, the the difficulty of the Christian life are many, right? We are called to follow Christ by bearing our cross. But the reward of the Christian life is that we get God. The glory of the new heavens, the glory of the new earth is not streets of gold, but it's that there's no need for a sun because God Himself will dwell in our midst. Our hope is that we will behold the Lord Jesus Christ with our very eyes, that we will see the fullness of His beauty and His glory, and that we will worship Him eternally. Money cannot buy that. Does that stir our hearts? Does that cause us to rejoice? Does that fill us with hope and longing? Or does that fill us with boredom? And so I urge you, as David himself urged you, you have said, seek my face, but my heart says to you, your face, O Lord, do I seek. Brothers and sisters, press on in seeking the Lord. And so finally, by way of application, the first thing that I think this psalm calls us to do is to trust the Lord in the midst of suffering. Suffering is a present reality and suffering is very difficult. We all go through intense suffering. And if you're not going through intense suffering or you haven't gone through intense suffering, you will. But our joy in life should not go up and down based on our suffering. Our joy in life should be anchored to the rock of Jesus Christ because He is our joy and He is our satisfaction. And this is verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. How can we say that in the midst of trials, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution? Because Romans 8, we have confidence that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Cancer cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ. The death of a spouse cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ. Political persecution and prison cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ. That is eternally binding and we can trust that no matter what comes, our Heavenly Father is looking after our good and our welfare. And so Christian, don't waste your suffering. When we encounter suffering, that is God's invitation to us to seek Him. When we encounter suffering, God wants to draw us near, but we have to turn our hearts away from our pain and our trial to that desire to know and love the God of the universe. But we trust that He will give us a peace which surpasses understanding. And we trust that in the midst of that trial... His grace will be sufficient for us in our weakness. And so we can take courage and we can wait. And our second application, and the thing I think that this, so the whole shape of the book of Psalms is pointing us to the coming Messiah as Israel is awaiting the Son of David who will sit on the throne forever. The whole Psalter is telling us that. And our psalm here is no different because what we have in Psalm 27 is a failing man writing about his trust in God. But no matter how great David's victories were, no matter how righteous David was, David could not atone for his own sin and David could not atone for the sin of Israel. David could not establish himself on the throne and push back the enemies of the kingdom of God forever because David was just a mere man. But the promise, 2 Samuel 7, was that David would have a son who would sit on the throne forever. Solomon was a great king. He amassed gold, he amassed property, he amassed women. David, or Solomon was an, a great king from an earthly perspective, but Solomon wasn't this son. None of the sons that followed Solomon were this son. Israel was still awaiting the one who was to come, the true seed of David, the one who would sit on God's eternal throne forever and ever, the one through whom the kingdom of God would be established and the gates of hell should not prevail. Brothers and sisters, that's the reality that we sit in right now. That reality, the kingdom of God that is being established in their midst is the church which is being established in our midst. And as the Holy Spirit is working through the preaching of the Word to draw us unto God Himself, Christ continues to amass for Himself a people and we trust and wait that one day He is going to come in the flaming fire of vengeance and we will all be vindicated and every ounce of suffering, every ounce of sin, every ounce of sorrow will be wiped away David couldn't do that but that's what the Jews were hoping for that's what the Jews were expecting that's what the Jews were longing and that's the longing that we all find in our own hearts, every time we're sinned against, every time we're wronged every time we feel the the tinge of sin in our own hearts, the cry is oh Lord, when when will this be put away The only way that this is put away, the only way that unrighteousness is done away with is through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit applying the blood of Christ to us and to to the nations. And so we cry. We cry, may we worship David's greater son, Jesus Christ. And that's the, the ultimate point that this passage leads us to is that David was a great man. David was a man after God's own heart. But David was not the man. Jesus Christ was the man through whom we have redemption, through whom we have the hope of eternal glory, through whom we have the forgiveness of sins as we just celebrated this morning. And He is the one who is right now drawing us to Himself for His own glory. And so go forward this week in the hope of eternal glory. Go forward this week knowing that if we seek to know God, He will reveal Himself to us. And that if we seek to follow God's ways, He will add blessing to our obedience to His Word. Please pray with me. Our gracious Lord, we again thank You. You have accomplished what we could not accomplish on our own. Lord, we could not bring about the forgiveness of our own sins. Lord, we couldn't even bring about our own sinfulness. But we are so bent away from You. Lord, we needed Your utter work of sovereign grace in our hearts to draw us unto Yourself, Lord, and we praise You that You have done that. I pray, Lord, that we would leave here treasuring You, that we would leave here delighting in the work of salvation that You have done on our behalf. Lord, we pray that You will continue to build Your people here in Southbridge, Massachusetts through the proclamation of the Gospel. Lord, may Your name be glorified and may the Lamb who was slain receive the reward of His suffering. It's in His name we pray. Amen.